Our sermon today is taken from Hebrews 9, verse 11 to 14. This is the word of God. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a hefty heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Thus says Lord. Amen. Let us pray one more time for the preaching of God's word. Father, help us now as we come before you in this Christmas season to see the aim of Christmas, why we need this Christmas to happen, why we needed you to come down, to become enfleshed, God with us, why we needed you to come down to secure an eternal redemption, why we needed you to come down to purify our defiled conscience, why we needed you to come down, Lord God, to offer not the blood of animals anymore, but the blood of your own son. So Father, help us focus Help me be clear, help us see the joy and magnificence of Christmas, and help us uh, apply these things to our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. For all friends, uh, we're coming to the end of our series, The Priesthood of All Believers. We've been looking at the Priesthood of All Believers for the past six or seven weeks or so, and this is so the last sermon on it. And through The Priesthood of All Believers, we've seen that um, it means that every Christian has the equal status as saints and priests before God to represent God to the world, to have access to God. And at the same time, every Christian, therefore, has the same kind of responsibilities. Though we might have different vocations, not everybody is called to ordain ministry. Everybody is still called to represent God in some way in the world, to represent God in some way to one another, to be friends with one another in one body, baptized in one body. And we saw that uh, all the way throughout the several weeks. But as we're approaching the end of the series... And as we're approaching Christmas, it's a good opportunity for us to see the foundation of all of that. How do we become so-called priests in the first place? How do we become saints in the first place? How do we become clean in the first place? How do we become called to such a high calling, a holy nation, a, a, a priesthood of all believers? How do we get all that? Well, the book of Hebrews is a great way to get at not only just the meaning of Christmas, why Christ had come specifically, but also to show that even though we're all called as priests and saints together, there's one priest that is absolutely unique. There's one priest, the high priest, that we have, we've all needed, the one mediator between God and man, and to see the significance of all that all in this passage. Especially it's a deep and rich passage, and we see therefore the overlap of the priesthood of all believers on the one hand, and at the same time the meaning of Christmas on the other. So there's three points from today's sermon. First, we're going to take a look at the aim of Christmas. Why did Christ come? For the purpose, what's the results? What was, what was he trying to do when he got here? And second, why we needed him to come. Why we need Christmas. Third, the Christ of Christmas to, to show how, what is it that makes him so unique as he came in the flesh. All right? First point, the aim of Christmas. Look here with me in verse 11 of chapter 9 in the book of Hebrews. It says there, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not out of his creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, 
but by means of his own blood, the securing an eternal redemption. So notice a few things here right off the bat. Christ appeared. All right? That's Christmas. Christ appeared. The Christ, namely the anointed one, the savior of all humanity, God becoming flesh, the incarnation. He appeared on earth, bringing about good things. Again, Christmas is all encapsulated about that. When we think about Christmas, we're thinking about the Christ, and we're thinking about him giving good news, joy to the world. For Christ has come. Christ has come into the flesh to bring good things. But what are those good things? Right? We normally associate Christmas with good sentimental feelings. So what is it that he bring? What is, what is it that makes these things good? Does he just bring good as if he just brought goodness in and of itself? The same way art is good or the same way beauty is good in and of itself? The same way we enjoy nature? What kind of goodness is it? Well, the goodness that he's referring to in verse 11 cannot be understood apart from what it says there in verse 12. He entered once for all into the holy places, and we're getting to that soon, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood to secure an eternal redemption. So namely, the good things that he's come is a specific kind of goodness. It's not a goodness that is generic, but it's a goodness that is in response to a specific need that humanity has. That specific need is that we needed to be covered by the blood of another. We needed, this text says, an eternal redemption. In other words, Christ came for a very specific aim. It's not as if he just came in general just to bring good feelings to people. It's not as if he came in general just to be with people. But he came with a specific mission in mind. He came with a specific direction in mind. And the specific direction is to offer his own blood to give an eternal redemption. What's redemption? Redemption is essentially a rescue project. Redemption is a rescue project. When we talk about the redemption of, for example, Israel's slavery from Egypt unto the promised land, we're talking about rescuing one people from a realm of darkness, of slavery, and at the same time, moving them, transitioning them into a new realm of freedom, of of a new realm of enjoyment with God. So in other words, when Christ had come, he came specifically with the good news of redemption. What did you need redeeming from? And that's an important question because how you define your problem will define, will affect why you think Christ came. If you think that your fundamental problem in life is self-esteem, you would think that Christ had come to bring you self-esteem. If you think your problem in life is sadness, you think that Christ has come to bring you eternal happiness. If you think your problem in life is poverty, you would think that Christ has come to bring you richness. If you think your, your main problem in life is simply just a, a death and sickness, you would think that Christ had come to bring health and wealth. But you see, if we define the problem in this way, and the good thing that he's come there is to define specifically with the specific aim of rescue, then you have to see, friends, that this goodness doesn't become good unless you realize the predicament that you're in. If you needed rescue, if we needed rescue, we're not in a good place. We're not in a good place. See, Christmas, God becoming flesh, is an indictment toward all of humanity. Because God becoming flesh is God seeing that all of humanity has tried to get to God. That all of humanity has tried to purify themselves of a guilty conscience. That all of humanity has tried to become right with God, to become holy with God, but they have failed. 
So Christ had to come and do it himself. You see, friends, Christmas doesn't mean that Christ is simply bringing about good advice. It's not as if he just came and gave us all just more moral teachings. You see, why do we see so many self-help books? I get so frustrated when I see self-help books in, 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 in all of bookstores, and it, it occupies the most, the most prominent sections of our bookstores, right? Every year, new titles, and every time I read one, I'm like, I know all of this. Clean your room every day, you know, get order into your life. Uh, declutter everything, you know. Um, make sure that you forgive people because bitterness is bad for you. Like, I knew all that. Why? I didn't need you to tell me what to do. I know what to do, but my problem is I can't do it. I can't help myself. You see, why do we feel that? We talk about, you know, redemption out of a kind of slavery, and you're thinking, I'm not enslaved, I'm not physically in slavery, but, but don't you see, why do you wake up in the morning and you find this constant drag, you find yourself waking up in the morning, and it's just so hard to get out of bed sometimes? Why does it, do you find yourself, even though you know that you have to forgive your parents, you have to forgive your spouse, you find yourself again and again just feeding the bitterness, feeding the resentment? Why is it that you get up in the morning and you know that it's a good thing, it's a good thing to open up your Bible? you open up Netflix instead? Yes, in the morning. I know some of us do that. Why is it that we get up in the morning and then we, for the first thought in, my, in our minds is not, it's a good day, I'm healthy, I should be thankful. But immediately we just think to ourselves, every, I, why, why is it so difficult for us to just even remain positive? You know, you watch Dr. Phil, you watch Oprah, you watch all these positive thinking kind of self-help methods. It's just common sense. Friends, we don't need people to tell us how to become better. We know what we need to do to become better. The problem is we can't do it. We can't do it. You know, it's amazing. We got technological advancements that tell us. It's amazing when you you talk about the the political pundits, the the podcasts that you listen on the radio, and they're always saying that the problem of humanity lies elsewhere, right? It's about, oh, oh, the culture out there. Uh, you know, it's the traditionalists out there with their, you know, traditional ethic. They're really holding the nation down from progressing technologically. Or, you know, the conservatives out there are also telling those in the left and saying, oh, it's those people out there, you know, if only they could just listen to us and become morally righteous, the world will just become a better place. But you see, friends, the Bible doesn't say the problem is out there. The problem says the Bible's with you. The problem, the problem is right in our own hearts. The problem is not something outside of us. The problem is inside us. And that's the bleak message of Christmas that we have to begin with. If God had to become flesh, that means we're, we're in a sinful predicament. We're enslaved to our own desires. We couldn't have done it ourselves. And by the way, maybe for some of you, this is your first time in church and God knows however long. And you've only shown up in Easter or Christmas. And you've thought to yourself, I tried this Christianity thing long ago. And you've thought to yourself, you know what? I've tried that Christianity thing long ago. Things didn't change for me. I didn't get a wife. I didn't get richer. I didn't get any happier. I still stayed lazy. Nothing changed for me. I I didn't get over my sicknesses. You've defined the problem wrongly. What if the problem is not any of those things? What if the message of Christmas, the message of the whole Bible, if you've been reading the Bible because you have thought to yourself that what you've needed is health, wealth, greater self-esteem or whatever, you've been reading the Bible the wrong way. That's not why the Bible is for. The, pro- the Bible 
talks about a rescue project and not about a self-help method. The Bible talks about God coming in flesh because you couldn't have done it yourself. The Bible talks about coming to rescue you because you have defiled yourself. We have defiled ourselves over and over and over again, and we couldn't have done it. We couldn't have done it. There's something, therefore, utterly basic, simple, metaphysical about Christmas. You see, China's just, you know, I saw the news in the last few weeks. We saw that China has actually tried to ban Christmas. You saw that, like in the news? Uh, several cities in China are actually saying that churches shouldn't celebrate, actually churches shouldn't meet at all. So we have the Chinese churches getting detained, getting imprisoned. Uh, there were raids in their homes because they were meeting in homes in private. And they were taken into prison. And at the same time, uh, the Chinese government is honing down on Christmas as a celebration because they saw Christmas not just as a nice, fancy thing that we all get together and just enjoy some warm beverages. They saw Christmas as a threat to their own political ideology. How? Maybe the Chinese government understands Christmas more than we do. Because if they see it as a threat, then they're, they're recognizing something for what it is, right? Christmas isn't a sentimental, feel-good thing about Santa Claus coming to you and judging whether or not you're naughty or nice. Christmas is saying, fundamentally, everybody is stuck in sin, yes, even the Chinese government. And that terrifies them. And that means that everybody's equal. That means there's no such thing as authoritarianism. That means that no human being should be able to have the right to simply control another human being. That means everybody's in the equal leveling place. And the Chinese government probably sees that. They see that as a threat. They see that as a threat. If we simply see Christmas as a time for us to just, oh, not think about things. Not get metaphysical. Don't talk about religion and politics over Christmas dinner because here's where we feel good. You've missed the point. You've missed the point. Christmas is, is, is a rescue project. It's a real threat. And, and, and again, we, I want to just hone in on the gravity of this because we, we have to see the predicament that we're in because, because we need, if we don't get that, we won't get to see what makes Christmas so darn good. We won't get to see what makes Christmas so good. All right, so second thing we need to know is why we needed this happen. Why do we need Christ to come in flesh? Why do we need God himself to come down? Well, the predicament here is... Uh, twofold. First, God is holy, and we're not. And second, we have a defiled conscience. We'll take that one by one. So the first thing this text tells us is, look at verse 12. We needed Christ to enter as a high priest, as Tazar mentioned, because we needed a mediator between God and man. Why do we need a mediator? Because we needed someone who was pure and righteous to enter once for all into the holy places into the holy places. And let's just pause there, all right? What does it mean to be holy? To be holy doesn't just mean that you're morally pure. To be holy means that you're utterly set apart. You're utterly different from everything else around you. To be holy means that there's something distinct about you, something that is set apart about you. Your role, your person, your being is utterly different from everything else. So to be holy means to be utterly different, something alien, and that's how God is described throughout the Bible. He's a holy God. In other words, he is so utterly different, so, so much higher than us, so much more set apart from us that do you see that every time people meet God in the Bible, they get scared? 
some of you have heard this before, right? But every time you see people meeting Satan or the demonic forces in the Bible, they don't get scared. When the serpent came to Adam and Eve, they, Adam and Eve weren't like, oh my goodness, a talking serpent, a demonic spirit, let us get out of here. No, it was almost like they were having coffee with the serpent, right? You're just like, hey, let me entertain this thought with you for a moment here, right? And, you know, every time God encounters, uh, Jesus encounters the, the demons, and, and, and they're just with the people. They're possessing people. And even Jesus saying to Peter, you're actually talking out of a demonic spirit because, because Peter was telling Jesus, don't suffer. Don't suffer. Just, just don't obey God. You see, we have, an, we have an alliance with the devil that makes him comfortable to us. It makes him comfortable to us. And, and so it's easier for us to listen to him. But every time we see God encountering humans in the Bible, they're utterly terrified. You know, um, Adam and Eve was the ones who hid from God. When Jesus calmed the storm the first time, right? And you see this account in the book of Mark. Peter doesn't go, wow, what an amazing thing. I'm so glad you're around. He says, depart from me, O Lord. I'm a sinner. When Isaiah meets him in the temple, he doesn't say, finally, I've been praying for you to show up in my life. Finally, you've listened to me. He's, he, he, he's torn apart. He says, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. I don't even deserve to be here. And friends, we don't get this. We don't get that God as a holy God transcendent over us and we are sinners and we don't deserve a relationship with him. We walk around as if God is entitled to meet us. We walk around as if it's obvious that God has to just be to be for us. It's obvious that God just has to be good for us. We walk around and we get, we get outraged when we don't get what we want from God. As if we have a right unto him whatsoever, you see. As if he's just one big Santa Claus just here to give us all presents. And it's his job to do that. Friends, that's not what the Bible teaches about God at all, friends. See, I've used this analogy before, but let me just use this again, okay? You know, deep inside, right? You know that you've met in this church for, for however long now, maybe for a year. You've talked with one another. You're dependent upon the other person for them to reveal themselves to you for you to get to know them, right? I mean, you, you might meet the same person every week at church, and you might say to this, ask them the same questions. How are you? Good, good, I'm good, I'm good. But you might go to the same church, meet them every week, but you won't actually get to know them unless the other person actually tells you something about them. Unless the other person actually tells you, revealing themselves to you, become vulnerable with you. Right? Unless you actually sit down and have coffee with the same person, and they actually spill out who they are, their loves, their hates, their character. You, you don't actually get to know this person. In other words, when you, know, when you want to get to know somebody, even in a horizontal way, right? It doesn't depend on you whether or not you get to know them. It depends on them. They have to take the initiative to reveal themselves to you. Now, take that up a notch and say, what about a relationship between you and someone higher than you? What if you just showed up in Istana Merdeka? You went to the president's place with the guards there. And you just say, I want to show up and I want to have coffee with Jokowi. You know, my Instagram has been lacking followers, but if I get a selfie with Jokowi, like that's going to really get my Instagram up. I just love to do that. You know, Jokowi, I'm sure he's a great president. I'd love to meet him, get to know him, become his friend. What's going to happen to you? You're going to be reporting the news. You're going to be deemed a stalker. You're going to be kicked out of there. You know, you're, you're going to be dragged out of there, right? Why? Because, friends, when you're talking about a relationship with a higher authority, you don't get to decide whether you get to know them. 
they have to summon you. They have to summon you. Now, what if you were a prisoner? Guilty. Having committed a crime. And then you said to yourself, you know what? I'm going to go ahead and get out of prison and just meet Jokowi. I'm just going to try to do that. You know, Ant-Man 2, I love this scene. You can't, you know, argue with me that I'm spoiling this for you. It's been a long time ago. I'm sure a lot of you watch Ant-Man 2. Ant-Man 2. There's this hilarious scene in the middle of the movie, right, where you see Hank Pym, played by Michael Douglas, and he was, you know, he's a rich person who, who, who is smart. He has this technology, but he needed help. And he needed help, and he met with Luis, Michael Pena's character. And it's this hilarious scene, and Michael Pena's character, actually in the first Ant-Man movie, stole from Hank Pym's character. Stole from him. So here's the robber meeting someone that he stole from, and now someone that he stole from is coming to meet with him. And Michael Pena's character, Luis, was like, isn't it funny that you're here with me right now? I mean, would you expect that you would have come here? I mean, I robbed you. And everybody laughed, right? Everybody laughed. Why? Because there's a discrepancy there. There's a discrepancy there. A thief meeting a, someone that he's wronged shouldn't be happening. <laughs> a thief meeting someone who's wrong should be, should be utterly afraid, but you see this friendship floundering and you see to yourself, why was it absolutely comedic? It's because you know yourself that if you've wronged somebody and for you to just be in the same room with that person, that's inconceivable in some cases. Utterly inconceivable. And that's why we needed a mediator, friends. God wasn't obligated to meet with you. God isn't obligated to answer your prayers. God isn't obligated to meet with us in our rooms every time we pray at night. God isn't obligated to heal us. God isn't obligated to make our lives better. The same way Jokowi is not obligated to make a prisoner's life sentence disappear. You are holy. You're before a holy God. And we dare think God would just simply show up. We needed a mediator. We needed someone. Our, our human predicament is we needed someone to come around and say, I know you can't do it. I'll do it for you. I'll enter into the holy place. I'll go before God. And I won't be eradicated because I will be holy in your place. Friends, Christianity, again, isn't good advice. It's good news. You needed a substitute. You, needed a good, you didn't just need a good example. You needed a substitute to go into the holy place and not be eradicated so that you too could one day come over there. And he had to offer his own blood because without the shedding of blood, Hebrews 9.22 says, there will be no forgiveness of sins. A good judge can't simply let sin go. You have to see that. Or else, friends, grace is never, never going to be amazing to you. You have to see that. And second, what's the second problem that we see here? Why do we need Christmas? Well, it tells us right here. In 9.14, how much more will the blood of Christ, if he offered this blood of Christ, who is without blemish, purify our conscience? Which means that we needed Christmas to come because we had a defiled conscience. We didn't just need a rescue. We didn't just need a holy person to come on our behalf, to become a representative before a holy God. We needed someone to purify our conscience, which means that our conscience was defiled which means that we had a heavy conscience, which means that we had a conscience that haunts us, which means that we had a conscience that condemns us. So what does it mean for us to have a, a defiled conscience that needs purification? Well, at least two things here. What does it mean to have a defiled conscience? At least two things. 
it means a, a deep awareness of guilt that, that is defined in two ways. First is bitterness, and second is regret. First is bitterness, all right? Having a defiled conscience, having an awareness of guilt means that we have a deep awareness of other people's guilt, and that leads to bitterness. That leads to a kind of resentful spirit that is just utterly aware of other people's sins and therefore other people's guilt, right? There's a kind of bitterness that simply counts the wrongs of other people. There's, you see, friends, our memories are not innocent. Have you noticed that about yourselves? Our memories are not innocent. I know some of us here who still remember what their parents have told to them that was utterly hurtful 27 years ago. There's just a one line. You can't get it out of your head. It was your fault. You're not good enough. Some of us here remember the bullies that we had when we were little children. Making fun of us. And we, we don't remember anything else about our childhood sometimes, right? We don't remember anything. We don't remember what our teacher, how our teachers were so good to us. We don't remember how our parents were so good to us. We just remember the traumas of our lives. Do you see that? And there was, a, there was an episode in a TV show recently and about a, a person suffering from dementia late in her life, you know, in her, in her 80s and her 90s. And it's an utterly heartbreaking depiction of dementia because what actually lasts when your memory is, is being taken away from you is nothing else but the traumas of life. Does remember anything else? But you know that to be the case. Some of you here are still haunted by things that have happened to you 45 years ago, and you're still rambling about it to your friends. I remember when I was seven when that thing happened to me. I remember when I was eight when that thing happened to me. I remember how evil that person was to me in school. I remember how I, I suffered that kind of thing for my friend in school. I remember how I was betrayed by a loved one. We just keep rambling. We're utter, our memories are not innocent. Why is that the case? And we could hardly remember the good things that happened to us yesterday. The kindness of a friend. The goodness of the meal. The kindness of just a simple hello from someone that you just recently met. You don't remember that. But you remember the, the traumas from 40 years ago. Why? We have a default conscience. But we also have guilt. That it's not just an awareness of the guilt of others. We have an awareness of guilt that resides in ourselves. You know, have you ever had a moment where, you know, I was just, I just had this this morning. I was ordering coffee from Starbucks, as one does, downstairs, and um, a, a flash, like a memory of something that I did years ago, just showed up. And it just, for a split second, I cringed. Ugh, right? Like, why? Like, why did I do that? Why, 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 do, I, why do I still remember that? Like, out of all the things that, oh, my goodness, this mic is out of control. For those in the recording, uh, my mic fell off. And anyway, because um, you couldn't see that. But but you see, when I was in, when I was in, I I couldn't I couldn't remember much about my childhood. But I remember every wrong thing that I've ever done, all the regrets that I've ever had. Here's here's our problem, friends. Not only are your memories fallen, here's another problem that you have. Here's a problem that problem that we have. We can't change the past. We can't change the past. You know things that you've done. We can't change the past. And you might try to just atone for your sins. You might try to just say, I need to just be a good person because I know what I did years ago. I know what I did yesterday. I know what I did two weeks ago. I know who I've hurt. 
and you can't change the past, and, 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 but it just haunts you and haunts you and haunts you. And you think to yourself, you know, how can I get rid of the stain of sin? How can I look at that person that I've hurt in the eye and meet with them and say to them and admit to them and tell them, I'm sorry, but I can't change the past? How do we live with ourselves knowing everything that we've ever done? And we might fool ourselves thinking, you know, we're going to become good and better one day. You see, friends, that's why the message of Christmas as secularized and the message of Santa Claus isn't good news. If God was coming the same way Santa Claus was coming, seeing whether we're naughty or nice, friends, we're doomed. God has seen it. We haven't been nice. We've done nothing but evil, and you know it. We've been trying to work down to the bone, trying to atone for ourselves, and this is starkly seen in this passage because it says here that the priests in the Old Covenant and the Old Testaments were entering not by their own blood because they're sinners. How can their blood atone for their sin? But also the blood of goats and calves. And this is something that they had to do yearly, again and again and again. Every year, they needed to do this. And in chapter 10, it says that they knew that the blood of animals couldn't atone for sins because they had to sacrifice another animal every year, reminding them again that they needed atonement again. Not only couldn't the animals wash away their blood, they knew that the priest that was doing it was also a sinner. So he needed atonement for his own self. He needed to save himself too. He needed to save everybody else. And friends, that's not, don't have a desensitized view of that, right? You needed to raise a lamb. You needed to feed it. You needed to make sure that it's the healthiest lamb, the prime lamb that you've ever had, or, or whatever kind of the prime livestock that you've had. And you can't enjoy it. And you have to slit its throat. The priest had to slit his throat, had to butcher it. There was blood all over the tabernacle where God would consume the offering. What does that do to you psychologically if you have to go through that every year? You have to do that every year. And, and you could also, there's, there's another profound message being communicated there, right? That the best of your livestock had to be sacrificed to God because I think God was also trying to tell you your sins mean that the happiness and the enjoyment that you could have had in life without sin, you couldn't have anymore. God will have the best of your life because, you had to, for, because your sin had robbed you of the happiness that you could have had. You needed a conscience cleanser. You needed to know that you could live not counting other people's sins anymore. Not under the weight of regret, not in bitterness or regret, but rather you needed to know that even though you can't change the past, you could change the present for the future. How do we do that? We needed to see the Christ of Christmas. Friends, here's why this is so good. There, the Christ of Christmas, my third point, the uniqueness of this high priest. You needed to see three contrasts in this passage that tells you that here, friends, here's an assurance for you. Here's a mediator for you that you know will be there forever interceding on your behalf. A great high priest whose name is love. Who's, who has your name graven in his hand so that as long as he's standing before God, 
no matter what accusations Satan could bring your way, no matter how many reminders that you have of your own sin, you can say, as long as he is there, no tongue can bid me thence depart. I belong with God and God is mine forever. Here's how you can know this, friends. First, first contrast. He came into a tent. This is in verse 11 again. A more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, but rather he's in the heavenly places. He entered once for all into the holy place, and, and therefore this, this, this holy place that he is in heaven, invisible to us, is in contrast to the temporal things on earth that we used to look to, to seek our redemption from, right? Remember what Tazar said in, in the beginning of our call to worship. People in the Old Covenant needed to have a pilgrimage to the temple in Jerusalem and go through three layers for the, for the high priest, three layers of walls for the high priest to take their sacrifice into the mercy seat of God. And they needed to do this every year. But you see, what would happen if the temple was destroyed? Where would they sacrifice this temple? And, and what this text is saying is, Jesus has offered himself to God in a tent not made with human hands and therefore an eternal tent that will never go away. There is no more need for a visible tent of God's presence because Jesus is with God forever as a perfect humanity interceding for you. He's your advocate defending you from Satan's accusations. And this saves us from a kind of religious externalism. And you know this to be the case. There's some things in your life, tokens in your life that you know and you remember yourself. So for example, if you get married, maybe it's your wedding ring. It's a physical token that reminds you of your wife's love for you or your husband's love for you, right? There, there may be things from your parents. There's that one gift that you had from your parent that you know, okay, I, don't, I, might, I might feel insecure about well, the way my parents feel about me or the way my kids feel about me, but I, I had this gift from them, and so I can hold on to it. I can hold on to it, and that's how I know. That's how I get a kind of assurance that my spouse, my kids, my parents love me. But you see, friends, the people in the book of Hebrews, they had that kind of tendency. They, were, they, were, they had such a seared conscience that they were tempted to say, how do I know that God loves me if I don't have a temple? How do I know that God loves me if I'm not sacrificing animals? How do I know that God loves me if I don't have a physical way of remembering God's love for me? And the book of Hebrews flips down on its head. And he's saying to you, precisely because Christ is resurrected and ascended before the Father, precisely because he's invisible, even if those tokens of remembrance were taken away from you, you don't have to worry. And the people in the book of Hebrews were persecuted. They were getting imprisoned. They were getting enslaved because of their Christian faith. They were dispersed everywhere. They were, in other words, estranged from those tokens that reminded them of the love of God. And what the author is saying is, you don't need those anymore. You don't need to look at the crucifixes anymore to know that God loves you. You don't need to go on pilgrimages to Israel anymore. You don't need to look in physical tokens to know that God loves you. Just look upon Christ. It's finished. It's finished. He's your perfect sacrifice. But not only that, friends, not only is there a contrast between the holy place and the tent made with hands, but it's also, you see here, not by means of his, the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood. You see, he needed to atone for your sins through his own blood. No longer by the finite blood of bulls and calves, but rather by his own blood. We know that the blood of animals can't take away sin. We know that our dead works cannot take away sin. But Christ's blood does. But that's not, that's not just that. There's, there's a third contrast that I want you to see here. The third contrast is he offers himself without blemish to God in contrast to your 
dead works. Verse 14. Your dead works. He offered himself without blemish to God to purify our conscience from dead works. And that's a huge thing. Because, friends, it's not enough for you to get forgiveness of sins. Let me say this again. It's not the Christianity isn't just about the forgiveness of sins. It's not enough. If the blood of Christ washes you from all of your sins, and then now it's up to you to prove to God positive righteousness. I might have been washed and forgiven of my sins, but now it's up to you to now walk before God. Okay, your sins have been forgiven. No, God, prove that you're holy. You have a clean slate now. Go prove that you're holy. That isn't good news either. What we need is not just a cleansing of our sins. What we need is a positive kind of righteousness and holiness that someone else was perfect in our place. We needed not just Christ's death, but also his whole life. Why do you think that the Bible spends so much time outlining the life of Jesus for you? The way he was when he was a child in the book of Luke, the way he was before the Pharisees, how forgiving he was before everyone, how he was tempted in the wilderness. Why did you think that most of the Gospels, up until the death of Christ, was just outlining the magnificence of the character of Jesus? Is that just ornamental? Is that just a fine aesthetic? Is that just literary? No, it's not. It's telling you, here's the person that you know in yourself that you ought to be. Here's the kind of forgiveness that you know in yourself you should have been. Here's the kind of person you know to yourself that you should have been to your parents. Here's the kind of person that you know yourself you should have been to your enemies. That's why the life of Christ was so utterly outlined, right? And he needed to do that and to offer himself without blemish. His whole life was a sacrifice for you. And not just to offer the sacrifice and to purify our conscience from your bad deeds. Notice it says dead works. In the Christian faith, friends, you're not just repenting from your bad deeds. You're not just repenting about the lies that you told or the fornications in your life or whatever or the thefts or the blasphemies. You're actually also repenting from the good things that you've ever done. Because you know that deep inside any of these good things you've ever done, all the religiosity, all the behavior, that's not what gets you saved because you know that every single thing, that, every good thing that you've ever done has been mixed with bad intentions have been done imperfectly, hasn't been exactly well received. You know the imperfections of your good deeds, so even your good deeds. So the Christian doctrine of sin, friends, means that even your good deeds have been tainted with sin. How can you rely on them? So he had to offer himself without blemish unto God. So let me just end with this. I want to put this as starkly as possible. I hope we get this especially this Christmas season, okay? Without sin, there would be no Christianity. Without sin, there would be no Christianity because Christianity talks about the Christ of Christmas, a Savior. Without sin, there would be no need for a Savior, therefore no need for Christmas, and therefore no need for Christianity. There might have been undefiled Trinitarian religion. There might have been undefiled relationship with God, but if you're a Christian, what you're actually communicating and confessing is a divine rescue project because you couldn't have done it yourself. You needed a great high priest to mediate for you, to shed his blood for you, to purify your conscience, to save you from your own dead works. That's the Christian faith. So stop talking about the Christian faith like a self-help project. Remember this in the Christmas. 
And by the way, when he's looking upon you from the heavenly places, it's not as if he's rooting for you. You know, every time you fall, don't get this image in your head. Every time you fall, don't get this image in your head. Christ is not saying to devil as he's accusing you, well, look, he's going he's gonna to pick himself back up again. He's going to do better next year. He's going to have better New Year's resolutions. That's not what he's saying. He's, it's not as if he's looking for, at you and then pointing the devil to you and your good works saying he's going to be better. He's going to improve. He's going to mature. She's going to be better. That's not what he's saying. And sometimes I think we get the image in our head. Every time we fall into sin, we think to ourselves, while Christ is in heaven interceding for me, that means he's rooting for me to just simply get better. And that's not what he's doing, friends. He's saying before the devil and before God, it's finished. So rest. It's finished. That's the good news. Let us pray. Father, what amazing news this is that you came, you shed your own blood for us, offer yourself without blemish for us to purify our conscience so that we can no longer nourish resentment or bitterness, no longer be haunted by regret, but rather we know that we're new creatures in Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.